Good morning, Sterling. It's uh, absolutely wonderful to be here with you this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Joe. I'm the campus pastor out at the Ridge. Um, in the Ridge, we're we a multi-site church. Uh, we're multi-campus. We've got more than one campus. We have the 8, 10, and the 6 that meet here, but we also meet out at the Ridge at 9 o'clock, and that's where I'm based every Sunday. Uh, we're part of SBC. We're part of Sterling. And so if you have some time, come and check us out. It'll be really great to have you. But other than that, I have the wonderful privilege of being here at the 8 to come and share God's Word with you. And man, thanks to John and the team for that. That was that was awesome. I didn't want that to stop. Um, but let's, let's pray and commit this time to the Lord. Lord, we are incredib- incredibly grateful that you have ordained that when we get together to worship you, that you are here. And when we come and seek your face, that Lord, you said your presence would be felt. And Lord, the unpacking of your word is another way in which you speak to us and you speak to us powerfully through it. And I, and I pray this morning as, as we dive into this, and as we unpack things about the Spirit, that you would lead us in that. Lord, we pray that Christ would be glorified, that you'd use my words, Lord, that you'd take them and make them your own. And anything that's not of you, Lord, we pray it would fall on deaf ears. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have, over the last couple of weeks, have been starting our, um, our series, our mini-series called in Pursuing Life in the Holy Spirit. And uh, what do we mean by that? Well, we, we're talking about pursuing, and when we talk about pursuing, we're talking about being intentional. All right, I say this quite a bit. There's a difference between having good intentions and being intentional. Many of us had good intentions at the start of this year to start dieting, uh, but very few of us were intentional in getting rid of all the junk food, joining in the gym, and waking up early for those runs. There's a difference between having good intentions and being intentional. And what we realize is that when it comes to the things of faith, that we cannot just have good intentions to do things, but rather we need to be intentional in doing them. That is why we are meeting with Taryn on that worship evening to pursue life in the Holy Spirit. We want to be intentional about it. And by the way, that's happening on a Wednesday night. Uh, So soul groups will not be, it's not a Saturday, it's a Wednesday night. We will be meeting for that. So cell groups come, make sure we be there. We want the whole church is gathering. We are bussing people in from the ridge in here. We want to make sure it's going to be awesome time. So so set the time aside um, that Wednesday. Can you remember the date? Is it the 27th? Man, I didn't even have to say it. Uh, So that's the day. Come along to that. It's going to be awesome. But we also want to pursue life. What do we mean by life? Well, we mean vitality. We mean energy. We mean some oomph. But at the same time, when we mean life, we mean a holistic thing. Every part of who we are, we want to pursue the Spirit in that. We want to make sure as if we husbands or wives that we have the Spirit there as, as parents, as colleagues, as sportsmen, as friends, whatever the case might be. In every aspect of our lives, we want the Spirit to be present. But we also need to grasp and understand what do we mean by Holy Spirit. In the last real two weeks that we have been unpacking, it's been packing that. Who is the Holy Spirit? And it's important that we understand that. So if you missed that, I'm going to give you a bit of a a breakdown. Go and listen to it online. It's important for us to understand who the Holy Spirit is because it affects the way we relate to Him. If we have a poor understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, man, we're going to relate to Him badly. But if we have a biblical understanding of who He is, then there comes all the benefit. Then comes the life. Then comes everything that we need. And, and well, we spoke about the fact that what the Holy Spirit isn't in week one. 
We spoke about the fact that he isn't a force. He isn't this universal energy in which somehow through the secrets of ancient scripture we learn how to tap into him so that we might have the best life possible and become the best us. That's not who the Holy Spirit is. He's not, he's not entertainment. He's not a feeling. He's not an experience. But rather when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we talk about a person. And we spoke about how the person, the, the person of the Holy Spirit has a, a mind. He can think. He searches the deep things of God. He has emotions. He loves. He gets vexed. He, um, he uh, gets grieved. He has a will. His sovereign will. He gets to do what he wants to do. We do not force our will upon him, but rather his will gets placed on us. But also... He, has, uh, he also has names, personal names of comforter, advocates, you know, whom we can relate to. But this person, the Holy Spirit, is not some lesser being in which now and again comes alongside us, but rather he is divine. He is God. He's, he's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere. He does things that only God can do and is what only God is. He is the God, the person, the Holy Spirit. And there are some implications that happen with that. Man, I just, can we just stop and, and be in wonder of the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in us? That this relatable person who is divine, who is God, dwells in you as believers. That is awesome. That is amazing to the fact that God, who, who would only fill in the Old Testament in temples and tabernacles, would come and make you as a believer his temple. God himself. That's incredible. And so, man, when, when we have him dwelling in us and he starts to lead us and guide us, what comes along with that is a sense of privilege, a sense of wonder that the God of all creation would come and speak to you. He would care about you, that he would know your intimate thoughts, your intimate dreams. He would know which aspect in life and every single day where you should go and how you should approach it. And he leads you lovingly and caringly through that. It is God himself who does that. Doesn't that stir up in you a sense of wonder of our God? But at the same time, that also means there's a weightiness to what he says, isn't there? That when he convicts me of sin in my life, and when he says, Joe, you should be doing this and not that, or stop that. Or Joe, I want you to talk to that person and share the gospel. Or Joe, this is what you need to be doing with your life. It is not this lesser being that comes along to have a, a guide to a better life, but rather it is God himself speaking into your life. There's a weightiness behind what he says. There is God. Speaking to you. That's awesome. But then there's also this realization that we need to come to, and this is what we spoke about primarily last week, is that we need Him. We need the Holy Spirit. There is this false teaching or understanding that says that we can do what God requires us to do. Church, I want you to know that God has called us to some big things this year. I'm feeling it. I, I really feel it. That God has amazing plans for us corporately as the eight, but individually as each member. God has some big things that He has planned for you as believers. He does. 
And we know he has stuff planned because he tells us in Ephesians 10 that before the foundations of the world, he had already had plans for you to do some good works for the glory of Christ. And he wants us to do those things. And I want you to know that those things are bigger than you. There are. And if we are going to approach this in our own strength, we are going to fail miserably. We, instead of being a city set on a hill bright for all of East London to see, what we are going to be is a dim little candle as a church. But with dependency on the Spirit, this God who loves us intimately and is in us, and as we rely on Him, as we sung this morning, Spirit, lead me beyond borders. Let me walk with the faith upon these waters. That are not the lyrics, but there was something along those lines. When we do that, man, we do great things. And can we not be so prideful to think that we are an exception to this rule? If David needed the Spirit, if Moses needed the Spirit, if Gideon and Samson and these great men in the Bible, all the major and minor prophets that we see in Scripture, all dependency on the Spirit, if Christ himself depended on the Spirit to do the work that he did, how much more do we And we need him in every aspect of the spiritual walk. And maybe, and this is what we're going to focus on this morning, what helps us to understand that we need the Spirit in our living out our salvation and doing things for the glory of Christ is that we need to stop and see that the Spirit himself was there at the very beginning of our salvation. This morning, we're going to focus on that, the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Now, when we think of salvation, often we accredit um, the Father and the Son, and rightly so. I mean, if it, if it wasn't for the planning of the Father before, before the foundation, uh, um, at the beginning of time, where Adam and Eve said, if you didn't plan the rest of it and go, listen here, I've got some work I'm going to do. I'm going to bring Christ by shaping nations, shaping people, and uh, shaping history to bring in Christ. If it wasn't for his unconditional, steadfast love that he would look upon us and want to share grace and mercy upon us, though we had rebelled against him, and he would send his only son. If it wasn't for that, we would not be saved. The Father deserves all our praise. So does the Son. (laughs) I mean, the Son himself would humble himself as God to become man where he would not be worshipped, but rather ridiculed and rejected by the very people he loved, created, and looked after for centuries and decades, and then live a life that of hardship of life. Many of us here have experienced hardness of life, so has Christ. And he would live a perfect life so that he would not sin And then as a result, he would be uh, betrayed by one of his closest friends. He would go off, he would be beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a cross. And in that, he would bear our sin. And the sin that deserved to be punished, our sin that deserved to be punished, Christ takes the punishment of death. And he rises again three days later. It is because of the Son that you and I experience salvation. Man, I can just preach on that this morning. But there is this member of the Trinity that seems to be forgotten when it comes to salvation. Besides the fact that the Holy Spirit did a lot of the work before the Father in the Old Testament by empowering a lot of these great men and women that you see shaping history for the coming of Christ. Besides the fact that he rose Christ from the dead, he was the power that rose Jesus from the dead. Besides that, the Holy Spirit has an intimate role in yours and mine salvation. And as we do this this morning, there's a couple of things that I want you to 
No, one, you need him. You needed him then and you need him now. But two, can we just experience as well the love that the Holy Spirit has for you and me? This intimacy that he has. And so this morning we're going to look at that. And how we're going to do that is we're going to unpack the different stages of salvation. And these different stages, man, and we're going to speak about them in stages, but they're happening in an instant. I'm going to have to click into the microphone for those who are listening on the podcast. It happens in an instant. So while we look at its stages, I want to see that these things are right behind each other. In some of these stages, you and I have no part playing at all. And some of them you and I do. So let's look at that. The first stage when it um, comes to this idea of salvation is the stage called regeneration. All right, now, I don't, um, that's a technical word we use in theology, regeneration. It means to have life or be made new. Maybe the biblical term that we all are familiar with is to be born again. And this here, the stage to be born again, church, is not a stage in which you and I are involved with. We are passive in it. We see this maybe explained better in John 1, verses 12 to 13. It's John writing about Jesus. It says, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And here it comes. Who were born, there's that life, not of flesh, nor the will of man, nor of blood, but of God. We are born and made alive by God himself. And this imagery of being born again is a imagery in which is uh, we can kind of uh, take into our physical sense as well. When we were born uh, physically, we had no um, part to play in that at all. I mean, none of us decided one day that we should be created or we had no decision in the fact that we would be born. And so it kind of suggests as well that we have no part to play. There's passiveness in this regeneration. And this complete sovereign work of God that takes place is, is foretold um, in in. Uh, through and predicted by this prophecy, Ezekiel. This is new life. We spoke about this verse last week. Matt uh, mentioned in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27, about this new spiritual life in people that God was going to give. I'm going to emphasize some words here. He says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to remove the dead part of you. This deadness in you, and I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you a heart that beats in your flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, which one of the Trinity members does this part? Who makes us alive again? Who does that? Oh, it's quite obvious the answer, right? It's the whole topic of today is about the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to give you the answer. It's the Holy Spirit. He does this in us. We see this with Jesus. He's talking to Nicodemus in John 3. And he's, uh, Nicodemus is talking about how can we be uh, saved? How can that happen? And Jesus says to him that you need to be born again. He says you need to be born of the Spirit in uh, John 3 verse 8. It's a work of the Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit comes along and he makes us new. He regenerates. This is uh, the, the Holy Spirit produces regeneration. Now there. Other 
scriptures that suggest that the Father is involved in this process as well. Uh, 1 Peter uh, 1 verse 3 says the Father makes us alive as well. And so how does that work? Well, it's kind of like a teamwork idea. We, we see Jesus say that the Holy Spirit never does anything that he um, is not told to do. He listens to what the Father and Christ say, and then he goes and he follows that command. And so you can imagine the Father coming along and going, there, give life. And the Holy Spirit goes and does the work. It's this team effort that takes place. But one of the questions that might be asked, well, Joe, surely um, repenting from sin comes before life, before we have life. Now, that's, that's a good question. And, um, and there is a, I remember, I want you to notice again that this is in an instant. There are, we're talking about milliseconds that happen between each one of the stages here. But a phenomenal preacher called Joel Spurgeon, you might have heard of him, Prince of Preachers, he explains it like this. It is true that one of the earliest developments of life is conviction of sin. But before any man can see his need of a savior, he must be a living man. Before he can really, I mean in a spiritual position, in a saving, effective manner, understand his own depravity, understand his sin. He must have eyes with which to see the depravity. He must have ears with uh, which to hear the sentence of the law. He must be quickened and made alive. Otherwise, he could not be capable of feeling seen or discerning at all. He's saying, yeah, is we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead. And you know what the amazing thing about dead people is? They can't do anything. And so here he's saying is that we are spiritually dead, and therefore we have no eyes to see, no ears to hear the ghastliness and the ugliness of our own depravity. So we can't even see our sinfulness. And so we can't see that, and therefore, how can we ever repent from it? So what the Spirit comes and does is He makes us alive so that we might see our ugliness, so that we might see the hope and wondrous hope that we have in Christ and go to Him. So when does this being made alive take place? Well, Peter gives us an understanding in 1 Peter 1, 23 and 25. He says here, you have been born anew. There's that newness, there's that life, born anew. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That word is the good news which was preached to you. And so, man, those days, if you're a non-Christian, you are spending time in the word and you're reading scripture. And it makes no sense to you. It is dry, but you are reading and searching. And then all of a sudden, something happens in you when you're reading and there's this conviction. There's this weight upon you as you realize your sin or you realize the magnitude of who Christ is. It's there that the Spirit has made you alive so that you might see your sin. It's in that moment that you have seen the ugliness and you've seen the glory of Christ. Or or it happens in in the preaching of the Word. That when a, a pastor or a preacher stands up and he preaches God's Word and he shares the gospel to you, As you are sitting there, you've sat here many times before. It is dry, it is weary, it is boring. Your spouse has dragged you along because she's promised that she'll take you away or let you go fishing for the weekend. And so that you've come to church. And as you've come to church, for some reason, there's something different. There's this weightiness on you. There's this burning in you because you realize, man, I am wrong. I am sinful. There's something wrong and you can't explain it. There's life that's been put in you. And you turn to Christ. 
You see his wondrous glory. That he has died for you and rose again so that you might be saved. And there is life in you. And in this instance, we are made new. Now that stage of realizing our sinfulness and seeing the wonders of Christ, here comes conversion. In that instance, as the Holy Spirit does this work, he rejuvenates you, makes you alive, but straight away he shows you your ugliness. Straight away he shows you your sinfulness. And as you see that, he starts to point you to Christ. So this place here, we have a role to play. In repentance, there is an active role in which we have. And he shows up our ugliness, and so we need to repent, and then we need to grab hold of faith. We need to take Jesus. There's an active role, but not, um, not apart from the Spirit. The Spirit still helps us with that. And so as we see our ugliness, the Spirit comes and convicts. That's what he's doing. So we see that the Spirit does conviction in John 16, verse 8. He says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgments. Because they do not believe in me. It is the Spirit that is making you feel like, oh, the weight of the world is on my shoulders. He comes and does it work. And what we need to do is repent. Now, there are two New Testament words for repentance that uh, is seen. The first one describes an emotional feeling. The, The first one talks about regret, remorse. It's deep emotional remorse and regret that you have sinned against God and against others. Now, this can be repentance for uh, salvation, but also as Christians, this is the type of repentance we can have as well. But there's a danger with this one. There's a danger with, with this one because it is the same word that is used for Judas and how he felt after he betrayed Christ. That he felt this remorse, this regret. But the problem was that Judas never returned back to Christ. There was self-destruction involved. I, mean, I think maybe this could be best explained um, uh, in contrast with Peter. J- Judas betrays Jesus, and, and Peter does something very similar. He, he denies Jesus three times. He's, his close mate, who promised he would die for just moments before, suddenly starts to deny uh, Jesus as he goes through his darkest hour, through his most difficult time. As he's been arrested and off to be killed, Peter denies him. And when the cock crows three times, what happens is that uh, Peter realizes that he has sinned. He realizes what he's done, and what does he do? He weeps. He has that remorse. But the difference between Peter and Judas is that Judas goes and kills himself, where Peter goes and returns to Christ, restored to Jesus, and he worships him again. And the danger here for us, church, is that sometimes we may feel the weight of our sin and the wrong things that we have done, and we just regret it, but there's no returning. There is no action involved. There's no coming to Christ. There's none of that. It's just, I am a horrible person. Proper repentance always results in an action afterwards of returning to Christ. It needs to happen. Now, that's the second word. The second word used for repentance often in Scripture is this one that conveys this meaning of to think differently about something or to have a change of mind. I was trying to think of a, a biblical example for this. And what popped into mind is the, uh, this young guy who's a king called Josiah. 
don't know if you've heard of him. It was my very first sermon I preached here in this church was on Josiah. Josiah has this awful grandfather. He is the worst king that ever existed uh, amongst um, the, the Israelites. He's the worst. Uh, to point that God promises that he will send the Jerusalems into exile regardless of what happened because he was uh, murdering children and sacrificing them to other gods, etc., etc. And so he eventually dies after some period. He's, uh, Josiah's dad comes in. He doesn't last long. I think it's a couple of years, and he gets assassinated. And Josiah is protected. And in the age of eight... He comes in as king. Eight years old, he is king of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but Scripture doesn't suggest this, but I'm just using my imagination here a little, that he probably was arrogant. As a young man, he probably thought the world was at his feet and he was the best thing since sliced bread. Did they have sliced bread back then? I don't know. I assume they did. But he was the best thing ever. I was arrogant as a prefect at school, in primary school. And trust, he was a prideful person. And here, Josiah does an amazing thing. He goes and for some reason, he goes and cleans out the temple. It hasn't been used in decades. And he tells them to clean out the priests or stumbling through, cleaning it, and they stumble upon the law. That's how unused it was. The priests didn't even know the law was there. And they read it and they realize this is important. They take it to Josiah and they start reading before him. And this young, arrogant, prideful king stands there and he hears the law read to him. He sees the wonders of this God. He sees the wonders and holiness of this king. All the things that he has done. And he realizes his sinfulness. There is life in him that comes so that he might see that he is sinful. And what does he do? He breaks down and he weeps. But he doesn't stop there. He finds out what we should do. They find a prophetess who gives them some instructions. And as they come along, he gathers Israel together. And he starts to read the law to them so that they would hear. And he makes this covenant before them along with all the people. And he says this. In 2 Kings 23 verse 3 it says, This is Isaiah made this covenant. To walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book, and the people joined him. But it didn't just stop there. He didn't just use words and say, Lord, I promise I will do this, but rather the reforms take place where his grandfather and father built high places for other men to worship other gods. What he goes and do, he starts to tear them down. He starts in Jerusalem and Judea and into Israel, but he doesn't even stop there. He starts to go all the way into other countries like Samaria to rip down these false gods so that people would only worship the true God. There is action. True repentance requires change of life. Doesn't mean we don't mess up, man. Josiah messes up. He does read the story. But it's in everything we want to change our minds and go after what Christ has given us. We want Christ and we go after him. To the point Josiah does this, that he, this is said of him in Scripture. Before him, uh, here was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor any like him arise after. No one like him. Church, repentance needs to not only make us feel bad, it needs a change of heart and a turning away from our sin. But hear me here. This needs to be coupled with trusting Christ personally. 
This needs to be coupled with having faith in Jesus. And this is one of the things that the Spirit does. He shows us our sinfulness. We, we break down this remorse. But at the same time, he's going, look to Christ. Look there. There's your Savior. There's the hope of the world. There's the one that's died for your sins. There's the one that's paid it all. It's only through him that there is salvation. Not through your good works, not through your achievements, not through anyone else. Only through Christ. And he points us there. It's one of the works of the Spirit. Look to Jesus. It has to be coupled with faith. Now, what is faith? It's not just a knowledge. It's not. It's not just understanding that Jesus died, understanding the concept that he paid for your sins and his resurrection. You can understand that well. You can regurgitate theology and books of theology. It does not matter if you do not believe it. Knowledge counts as nothing. We need it. But it is not the stage. Why? Because you can understand it, you can know the facts, but you don't necessarily have to hold to it personally. It's not even approval. It's not even the fact that, um, that, that you believe that Jesus lived in, in terms of you know it was true, you know he died. It's not good enough. You have to hold to it personally. I believe Christ church is in New Zealand. But it affects me no way, except when the Bulls play the Crusaders and lose. Then it affects me. But otherwise, it affects me no way personally. You can understand and even believe that Christ lived. But it needs to be a personal trust. You need to apply it personally to your hearts. That's what it is. It's a trusting in Christ. It's a holding on to Him. It's, it's turning back and seeing, there is my hope, and there's a clinging to Jesus. It has to be accompanied with a holding personally to Christ, that you have a personal relationship with Him. That's important. Have you personally received Him as your Savior? Because you need to. And the Spirit makes that happen. He says, look there. Look at Him. Look how glorious he is. He shows it. Yes, we have roles to play, but it's all because the Spirit leads us and points us. My son is making lots of noise. It's absolutely great. And may I suggest to you that you can't remove these two from one another. They're interdependent on each other, church. You cannot have repentance without faith. You can't. Because what is repentance? It's a turning away. It's changing of mind. It's a different approach. And there's only one other approach, and that is Christ. So if you are just saying, oh, I'm repenting, but you're not turning to Christ, it's not true repentance because it's the only thing you have other than Jesus. At the same time, you cannot have faith without repentance. Why? Because what is faith? It is the laying down of the old as you see the wondrous Jesus of our God, this amazing King that has died for your salvation, and you cling to Him. You cling to Him. It's a changing of the past and a holding on to Christ. That is coupled together. Important. You cannot remove. And in that moment, we move on to the next stage, and this is quick, I promise is there we are made to be justified. Now, what does that mean? It's a cheesy little way we explain it. Justified means to be made just as if I had never sinned. 
Get that justified, just as if I had never sinned. There's two things that take place. I'll be quick. Is one, there's this legal declaration that you are guilt-free. It's like a, law, a judge standing before you as you stood at your trial and someone has come and paid the bail you could not pay Christ in his death. And in that moment, the judge comes and says, you can go. Your price has been paid. You are no longer guilty. There is this freedom that comes. But it doesn't just leave us there. Justification is so much more than just getting rid of the bad stuff. There is also this moment in when Christ declares us righteous. He comes in, uh, the Father comes and looks at us and says, you are righteous. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the work of Christ. And we are seen not only as debt-free, but in internal credit because of the work that Jesus has done. This beautiful thing, this is what he does. And what the Spirit comes and does in this moment is he testifies in our hearts that we have been made right with God. We see in Romans that he cries out for us, Abba, Father, we know that we are now children of God. The Holy Spirit comes into us and shows us that we are adopted sons and daughters. This is the incredible work of the Spirit. I hope you see your need for him. You need him to be saved, and you need him to live out that salvation church. And I hope you see his love for you intimately along the way. And I know some of us, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, man, we are weirded out. And that's fine. But I want you to see this, man. He is good. He is good. He's not necessarily safe, but he's good. And we can trust him. Let us bow our heads. Maybe there is some, some of you this morning who, for the first time, you felt that weightiness I was talking about. Man, you're feeling heavy. Pierre was saying you've maybe arrived like that. Maybe you feel heavy this morning. If you have seen your sin, maybe you've seen your need for Christ. There's no greater opportunity than accept him now to experience life to experience joy and peace that comes with knowing this awesome and glorious Jesus. If that's you this morning, I'll ask you to be brave. And would you mind putting up your hand? The reason why we do that is not because there's any special voodoo power in it, but because so that you might know that you have definitely 100% made a decision this morning. For those of us who... um, those of us who do know Christ, may we just be in awe and wonder of him. May we be blown away by the fact that we are saved through the intricate work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray and then I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward and those who are serving to come serve communion. And then we're going to eat and drink together. Lord, we are so grateful for this wondrous wondrous work that you do. We're so grateful for Christ, that he would would come and, and die for us. We are so grateful that we who are sinners have been set free, not because of any uh, incredible 
um, work that we have done, but we have been freely given it. Lord, would you stir in us a, a deep desire for more of Christ? Would you help us, Lord, to be a church that is dependent on the Spirit, that we would know this Jesus more and more and more, that, Lord, we would learn how to walk in step with your Spirit daily, to live a life and pursue it fully, that he would come and, and work in every aspect, we pray. We love you, Lord Jesus. We're thankful for your salvation that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.